Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, the new book by Anne Helen Peterson. Esquire magazine calls Can't Even, quote, a razor-sharp book of cultural criticism. With blistering prose and all-too-vivid reporting, Peterson lays bare the burnout and despair of millennials while also charting a path to a world where members of her generation can feel as if the boot has been removed from their necks. Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson, available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's a Sunday episode. I have Lynn Steger Strong on the program. She has a new novel out on the uh, Henry Holt imprint. The novel is called Want. And it is excellent. I get a lot of books sent to me and I can't read them all. Sometimes I'm getting five books a day at my door. And it can become a little overwhelming. I can find myself feeling uh, like anxious with all these books. And so what I'll do is uh, ultimately I box some of them up and I give them away because I don't have enough room to shelve them all. But I will you know, sift through and sort out books that look like they might be of interest to me and I'll keep them on hand and uh, hope that I can find time to read them at some point. And not too long ago, I was in my garage, and I was sitting there, and there was this big pile of books looking at me. And on a whim, I just started to sift through it, and I came upon uh, Lynn Steger Strong's new novel. Again, it is called Want. And I looked at it, and I opened it, and I started reading, and I blew through it. I think I did it in two sittings. It's a superb book, and I think it's a timely book, too. So after reading it, I immediately reached out to her, and uh, she agreed to talk with me, and she's on the program today. I'm recording this on Friday, October 2nd, 2020. This episode will go live in about, what, 36 hours. Donald Trump is now at Walter Reed. He has the coronavirus 
Like what an insane news day today has been. And by the time you're hearing this, God only knows what will have happened, how fast things can change in this environment and just how nutty and confusing it can be and how mistrustful I can feel as this administration attempts to manage this, you know, seeming crisis. I don't want to be paranoid and I don't want to indulge in conspiracy theory, but I do find myself skeptical of everything they say. Maybe by the time this airs, it'll all be locked in. It looks like he has coronavirus. I would say that is the strong probability. But right now, I have not heard from any doctors at Walter Reed. I want to hear from them. Not like Trump's inner circle, even his doctors in his inner circle. I don't want to hear from them. I want to hear from the doctors at Walter Reed. And I want to get some real information about the strain of COVID that he has and how long they think he's had it and, you know, all the details. We deserve to know that about the president of the United States. So we are living through something right now. The election is 30 days away. Seems like a nice time to remind you to vote. Get that done. Do it early. Do it ahead of time. Make a plan to vote. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to send in a photo of where you listen or you want to send in a selfie and be part of the uh, Where I Listen project, that can be fun. Let us know where you are in space. Otherwise, let's get to Lynn Steger Strong here on this Sunday. Her new novel is called Wanted. is available from Henry Holt. Great time talking with her. I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Lynn Steger Strong. You know, I've I've had sort of maybe the opposite response, which is to say in some ways I think this book that I wrote that we're talking about was me being like, fuck it. I can say fuck, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But me, me saying, you know, fuck it. Like, I'm not sure if books are worth anything. I'm not sure if the fact that I still sort of doggedly try to be a writer is worth anything because it doesn't seem to matter. So, like, what what would I write if I was just like, okay, language, like, what can you, what can I do inside of you that I can't do anywhere else? Um, and so I, I, I think I wrote this book from that place. And so then the fact that this book came out at a time where, again, I think we're all sort of being asked to say, what's the value of anything that we do? Um, it was, it was useful to have already been in that place. Right. And it was useful to already say, like, I had a novel before this, in my mind, it mostly failed. No one really read it. Um, it was honestly the biggest impediment to selling this book was how poorly the one before that sold. Um, and so I just, I, I had long since made my peace with the fact that like, I like to write books. I'm probably never going to stop to the detriment of every other aspect of my life. Um, and I'm going to try to continue to be slightly better at it each time. I'm going to send it to a few people. If they like it, I'm going to feel some sort of pride in that. Um, and then beyond that, I'm going to like get up in the morning and love my kids and be good at my jobs and whatever, you know? Um, so (laughs) it's a long winded way of saying it, it was, it was actually like a better than a useful way to be coming at publishing a book during a pandemic because my, my bar was really low. 
Um, and because I already felt like my job was over, right? Like my job is to write the book. Um, and I have no idea what it's worth because I don't get to sit down next to other people while they're reading it. I hope it's worth something to other people. But with regard to making something that I feel good about, I did that. And then it was just sort of like I had to move on. Um, you know, I guess if you're asking, <laughs> if you're asking as a fellow writer, which maybe I'm interested in too, as someone who teaches a lot, um, I have weirdly found, like, I have more faith in books, I think, than I did a few months ago, not least because my book has actually been the best part of right now. And for most of my life, my career has been the worst part <laughs> of, of my life. Um, <laughs> And so the idea that, like, it's been a way to connect to people, to write emails to people, to feel sort of intimate with other people's brains in ways that mostly I feel like we can't be right now, like, that's felt like kind of an extraordinary gift. Um, and and the feeling that that's a gift has really sort of propelled me through the next project, I think, much more productively even than I was able to get into this one because it's just like, right, like, books – don't save the world. They don't save people's lives. They very seldom pay the bills, but they're this other thing that I still, for whatever reason, value. Um, and I weirdly value it right now more than maybe I ever have. Okay. So let's, let's, let's dig deeper into this. You say like, for whatever reason you value books Yeah. and you're not going to be able to give it up most likely, even though it rarely pays the bills. Like all of this stuff is music to my ears. Like there can be part of me that feels cursed for having this bug, you know, whatever drive mm -hmm. it is that propels a person to write and keep writing. It feels like you can't relinquish it past a certain point, like not to be melodramatic, but you're sort of, it's like a disease. <laughs> um, yeah. And I want to know, like you say, for whatever reason you value it, but you have to have a, a clearer sense of why, like, why do we as book people value books and, why do I share with you some similar feeling that right now with things in so much turmoil, uh, books might be able to play uh, a more meaningful or, or larger role in people's lives, or we might be able to get people to remember the importance and value of literature in present context? I mean, I'll start with the individual and maybe cast out, which is also, I think, like what books do, right? Which is to say that books... And, and I think in a lot of ways, this is a lot of what want is about is this tension of like books saved my life. And I'm not overstating to say that. Right. Um, I mean, you don't know, but it's true. Like they they absolutely saved my life. And I was a fucked up alone kid. And Virginia Woolf understood me in a way that none of the therapists that I'd seen had. Um, and she also showed me that like some of what goes on in other humans brains is beautiful and exciting and thrilling and the intimate experience that I had with other people's brains through language saved my life. And so for a long time that propelled me forward into writing books in this like hubristic feeling now, insane feeling now way. Um, but then I got older, <laughs> you know, and I have kids and bills and no time and three jobs. And the idea that, language matters started to feel less true it's certainly less true when you know I got my first book deal and it wasn't really very much and you know when when my life needed other things for me um but but I also think that like again like you say right now all I want is to feel close to other people and 
I can't often physically feel close to other people. And the thing that not only I think helps almost any other person feel close to, but the thing that I think like writers are good at, like, right, like language is communication. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> and the fact that we can see each other and understand one another better through communication feels really valuable. I also think that most of the time when we talk, people don't listen. And when they listen, sometimes they don't understand. And when they understand, sometimes they don't act, right? Like to get language right and to do language well and to do language in a way that I think now, and now I'm going to use that terrible phrase, I guess, but like now more than ever, but like now more than ever, we need people to act, right? Like I think we have to double down on our commitment to using language well. Um, and that's really hard, right? Um, and so, so again, you know, the idea that like, I, as someone who's already invested too much time, most of my time into thinking about how to use language well, would right now say, okay, and I'm going to just try to use it even better. It doesn't feel like it's saving the world, but it, but it does feel like a contribution that's connected to what I want right now, which is to, for just more people to feel connected to one another, for more people to feel like they might understand one another. I mean, I say all of this and I'm kind of grossed out, but I do also believe in it. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I feel, I feel similarly. I think, too, that there is something to be said about the function that literature performs at the level of depth that, yeah. you know, depth of thought, depth of expression, um, the issues of clarity and, and um, you know, accuracy that I think you're alluding to or talking about. It feels like medicine for the times that we live in when so much feels surface level, things in people's lives move so quickly. You know, work is stressful and happens fast and we are constantly on our phones or on social media and getting like all this information so rapid fire I mean, it sounds a little bit trite at this point, but it's worth repeating. It's like slow food, you know, like it's so, so much more nourishing than what we tend to eat. And I don't know, I feel like, you know, I'm sort of preaching to the choir, but it just feels so necessary to me. Yeah. Well, and I think too, and, and now maybe we're just preaching back and forth, but I think too, like, you know, I was talking about language, but maybe even to press on what you're talking about, like stories particularly, right? Because I feel like language has been used against us in all these different ways. And especially as soon as arguments start being proffered back and forth, everyone already knows where they stand and nobody's budging, right? But I do think there's something in the particular, like you say, the sort of slow food experiential immersion in other people's stories that's really different than arguments that ask different things of us that, that allows us to inhabit spaces of, of surrender and question instead of just like the cackles are up and you're, you're ready to fight back, you know? Mm, totally. And I feel too about your book that just the, like the energy in it feels really urgent. And I don't know if I'm projecting myself onto it, but it just feels like the kind of book that you wrote at the end of your rope in a good way. Like, I think you even said earlier, you sort of were just saying, fuck it. But a, a lot of times I feel like the best books are, are written in that mode where you, you just decide to drop all pretenses and say the stuff or tell the story that is most deeply meaningful to you. And I'm curious if that's accurate or, or semi-accurate and just want to hear you talk a little bit more about the origins of want and how you came to write it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very accurate. Um, 
And it's weird now actually writing another book and, and being in such a different space and thinking about, well, will I still have the energy that I want to have? Um, but, but I think what happened with want, or I know what happened with want is I, I wrote a first book. It, it didn't go, it went fine. Right. Like I was very lucky. It got out into the world. It didn't sell particularly well. I think I was both like shocked and devastated by the fact that my dreams came through and I was bas- came tr- true and I was basically still myself. Um, and that was like a hard pill to swallow for a while. Um, but then I wrote another book, which was going to be like my big, important book. And I had all these charts and graphs and it was built around a football season. Um, and I we sent it out a couple of times. Um, it didn't sell. Um, I didn't sell again. Um, I was in sort of a, a bad job. You know, all the normal stuff that happens when you're still trying to be a writer at an embarrassingly late age. Um, and then there was like this weird stretch of time where my job was over. My kids were still in school. Um, and I had sort of talked to my agent about writing an essay collection, but I just started rejecting that not least because of the stuff we just talked about like all I just wanted to be in scenes like I just felt so surely that only scenes could say what I wanted to say um and so one you know the first day that I didn't have anywhere to go and my kids did I got up at like three and I started writing this book and and I started at the start you know um and then I just kept doing that. I had I had six weeks when they were somewhere and I didn't have to be anywhere and I wrote the first draft in that time, um, in like a, you know, I mean, and, and I, I think you have a family too, in that weird way that like, you can't actually sustain, right? Like I also had to finish the book because I would have gotten a divorce, you know, like it was just like, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't really want anybody to look at me, you know, like I just wanted to work. (laughs) Um, like I, I have, I, like I know my husband talked in those six weeks. I have no idea what he said and I didn't care. Um, I just, I just wanted to work. Um, and so I finished a draft. Um, I had no idea what it was, and I felt sure it was either the best thing I'd ever done or the worst. Um, I know that. I, I, I relate to that feeling. I, re- I relate to everything you're saying, where you f- you feel like you have something like by the tail, and it's like really urgent. And if you don't get it out of you, and you don't use the time that you have, then it might not ever happen. It feels like very life or death in some dramatic way, but also like a yeah. real way. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's like, because you are giving up on your life. I mean, I really did. I really did give up on my life, you know, like my kids would talk and I love my kids, but they would talk and I'd be like, yeah, dude, what? Sure. You know, like watch TV um, in a way that I don't usually do. And my character in my book does. But um, but I mean, they definitely watch TV. But anyways, um, yeah, it felt it felt urgent and it also felt like I had to get to the end because I had to get out of it, you know, because it was really all consuming. Um, but also I think I'm sure, you know, you, maybe you do like, there's also that thing of like, I can't possibly see this well. Um, but I, and I sent it to my agent and she really hated it. Um, I'm so, wait, I want to stop you. Like, I cannot believe your agent did not like this book. I feel like this is such strong work. Like, and she and she didn't. She pushed back. She hate. She hate. It's it's hard to overstate. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't. She. I love her, and she. She's not my agent anymore. Is the end of the story. But but as a human, I love her. Um, and you know, we'd been through a lot. We'd been through that first round. We'd been through that other book over a period of three years, and and I think like I was going in a direction that scared her. 
um, anyways, we, we, we talked, my, my now six year old still brings it up as like, do you remember that time we were in the car and you talked on the phone with your agent? Um, because I was just, I like pulled over to the side of the road. It was just like the, the phone call ended with, with me saying, I don't know what to do. You know, like I've, I wrote, I spent three years on this other book. I wrote this book and I believe in it. And she was like, I want you to write another book. And I was just like, dude, no, you know, like I just didn't know what to do. Um, and just to amp up the drama, it was like we were in Maine and my kids, I was with my kids and the only way I could get them to be quiet was to strap them into car seats. And so they were with me and, you know, it was, it was, it was rough. Um, and I called, I, I knew another, I knew a woman who was an agent who was also just sort of a vague acquaintance because she had previously been an editor um, and she had tried to buy my first book. And I, you know, I, whatever, I'd followed her career. I was a huge fan of the books that she'd published. And I very probably unprofessionally emailed her and was just like, do you want to read a book? Um, and she read it in like 11 hours or something um, and got back to me and said, you know, I, I, I think this is something, I think it needs work, but I think it's something. Um, and we had a long talk. I called my then agent and I told her, you know, I've, I've talked to Sarah. Um, I've talked to this other agent. Um, and the other agent didn't want to do anything official because she was like, you've clearly been through the ringer. Just go, go do what I've asked you to do and we'll talk. Um, so I spent a couple months. I told my then agent, like, I want you to know I'm 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 going to go back to work, but like I'm going to work on this book um, and I'm going to send it to you when I'm done. But I'm also going to send it to Sarah. Um, so I I finished it. I sent it to the two of them like a couple months later. Um, and my then agent was like, it's absolutely better. I still think it's a bad idea. Um, and Sarah was like, let's send it out. So we sent it out. Um, and if you don't think that that entire experience haunted me at every moment through like first pass and second pass and third pass, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a very strange, I mean, a, I will say as a writer, it was really good to say at that point, my agent was the only thing that made me feel like I had a career. Right. I mean, you, again, you're a writer, so, you know, like there, are, there are things where it's like, I don't know, am I a writer? I'll email my agent and see if she exists. And if she does, I guess I'm kind of a writer. Right. And so like, she was like, all of my career was my agent. Um, and so the fact that she said no, and the fact that I said, no, you're wrong. It actually felt really important. Like it feels like now, and I'm lucky, right? Like it went okay. But like now looking back, I feel like that's the moment where I was like, no, even back to what we talked about before, I'm going to continue to try to make what I believe is the best book I can make at every moment in my career. What that means professionally can never be the point because the professional stuff is just like, it, it makes no sense, right? Like it's, it's, it's hot air. It's completely contingent on the mood. It's contingent on, you know, whatever random person at the times gets assigned your book, you know, like it's contingent on so many things that I have no control over. So the only thing I have control over is making the thing that I want to make at the time that I'm making things. Um, and I think to, to have to really be called on that and fight for that 
has served me really well, especially through like putting a book out in a pandemic and, you know, trying to, like you say, double down on being a writer in the face of who cares? Nobody cares. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So a question I have then is after going through this process and standing up for your creative vision, essentially, and sort of doubling down on that and making the decision to change agents and to go with this book, like, I guess you've sort of talked about it, but like what has it meant to you in terms of outcome? Like how has, like, I feel like this book has been really well received critically. I, I have to imagine that for people reading it, uh, there's been uh, like a pretty strong emotional response. I know I had one. I feel like the terrain that you're operating in, in want is stuff that's on a lot of our minds, but that doesn't often get discussed. And when somebody, you know, is able to go in there and articulate it in the way that you have um, with such uh, power that you have to be evoking a response in people. Like, have you, can you talk about outcomes? Like, has it taught you a lesson on that level in terms of reader response or critical response or how things went for you in the marketplace when you, when you went out with it or all of that stuff? Yeah, I think it's to the basic stuff that people tell you when you start to be a writer and then you stop believing in because you see too much of the market and you see too much of the ways it goes wrong, which is to say that it, it you know, it's that idea of bloodletting on the page and there's something to be said for that. It's that idea of, you know, write a book that feels like a knife and there's something to be said for that. I think, number one, that's a lot harder than people say, right? Like, I don't think I would have been able to write this book five years ago or 10 years ago, I think I had to be a good enough writer to press on this particular bruise because in my mind, at least this book walks a very thin line of if I fell too far in one or the other direction, this character starts to feel too much like a victim. And it was really important to me that she feel as much like a perpetrator as she did like a victim, um, which is just a, a sort of long winded way of saying, I think it's been great to feel affirmed that you should write, you should press on the bruise that feels most present to you and you should press as hard as you can. But it's also been useful to have written this book a little further along in my career, such that it also feels like I had some agency in the process, right? Because I think 
you know, and even some of the responses, some of the responses to the book have been about the sort of rawness of it and the honesty of it, which which I believe in and I love in books. But I also think there's the danger there then of saying, oh, this lady just came and spewed her feelings on the page. Um, and I think if, if I were younger or if I were from the outside hearing some of that feedback, my response would be, well, then how do I do it again? Right. But I think instead I've been able to engage with that and say, yes, it has to do with the bloodletting. It has to do with pressing on the bruise or whatever metaphor about bodies you want to use. Um, but it also has to do with doing it precisely and exactingly. And so I think that the combination of those two things has been useful it's been useful to me when people say things about the book I really don't like it's been useful to me when people say things about the book that feel like they're attacking the narrator because that's fine right like the narrator is a construction and I built her to serve a purpose and if she made people angry probably she was supposed to make people angry and that's okay right and when the response is positive but it's about how raw and honest it feels I can appreciate that because that's what I wanted people to feel like, right? I wanted the whole book to feel like you're at a bar and it's a little bit sweaty and somebody's sitting next to you and they're telling you a little bit more about themselves that makes you comfortable, right? Like that was the, that was the feeling I wanted to give. And so when people say they felt that, I feel excited, not just because I did my job, but because I love that feeling, right? And, and I love the idea that I created a sense of intimacy because I think that's valuable. And I think books can do that in a way. Very few things can. I'm much better at intimacy in books than I am in real life, you know? So it's, right. so it's, it's, it's fun to imagine doing that. The one, the one thing that's strange is that the book's first person, obviously there are overlaps in my life. Obviously I very purposefully made it feel a certain way. There's also the interesting thing of, I think people's responses sometimes have been like, so we're best friends now which is which is kind of fun right again because like I did my job but also sort of like no no I'm I'm not I'm <laughs> I'm not her and actually I'm not great at talking about myself you know <laughs> so um but yeah again I I feel suddenly like I've gone on a tangent but but the 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 response has been I've been great I've been really grateful for the response um and I've been grateful to I've been grateful that this wasn't my first book and that I've had a lot of failures up till now. So wait, we're not best friends. I feel uh, offended. We by can this. be. <laughs> I mean, again, <laughs> my friend says that I do. I have this. Like, I want everybody. I want everybody to feel like we're best friends. But then I get scared. I hear you. I hear you. And I, you know, I think that when you're operating in a really raw, like auto fictiony mode. Um, and I know it's fiction, right? You made stuff up, but this is you. And like, to a degree, at least, I think you got to be honest about that. Am I, am I overstating it? I don't want to talk for you, but like, I always feel like I have a pretty strong sense of when somebody is, is really digging into themselves, uh, even if it's rendered in a fiction, like, am I on the right track? <laughs> I don't want to. No, I, you're totally on the right track, but I also, it's, I wonder you're totally on the right track in this, in the way that I don't think, especially books that we like, I don't think they're anything other than just our character. I mean, our writer just sort of unspooling the obsessions inside of them through the various tools of various characters. Right. Like, and, and I think too, like I really, 
there's something really specific that I was interested in doing with this book that does live in a character whose particular circumstance are really are are mine logistically, just in terms of living where she lived, being educated, the way that she's been educated, the way that I've been educated. Um, and, and especially that space of like having come from money and having none, right? Like all of those things are experiences that I've had. Um, but is she like, I don't think she's me, but I think the book is me. Yeah, I get that. You know? I get that. I totally relate to it creatively. And, um, I think that one of the things your book does really well is talk about money um, yeah. talks about a lot of things that people just don't want to talk about. And I notice it over and over again in the, uh, books that I read, how often the issue of privilege and class and money gets skimmed over or artfully danced around. Yeah. And if you, like, if you talk about privilege or coming from money, on the page, you're setting yourself up to get pilloried. I think a lot of writers shy away from it for that reason. It makes them seem less cool. Uh, yeah. Like, oh, well, then you're not like a hard scrabble story or somebody who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or who, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I think people can shy away from it or they'll feel embarrassed about it, um, you know, or vice versa. You know, somebody won't want to talk about it because they feel a sense of embarrassment around the fact that they're really poor or struggling or whatever it is. And, you go right in there and, you know, through this character and through this story, I think you provide some ventilation to the way that a lot of people live uh, generationally due to what's been happening in our economy. But I think maybe more specifically, you're zeroing in on the way that a lot of literary people live. You know, it is a kind of privileged uh, station. Oftentimes the people who do this, are able to do this. Like, yes, there's an element of choice to it, but you know, people who write books tend to be educated. Uh, oftentimes their education was paid for or, you know, partially paid for. Um, like money is often a factor in, you know, you live in Brooklyn, right? So, I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're surrounded by it. Like the literary set, there's a lot of like weekend houses, uh, upstate or in Maine. You know, how does that yeah. happen? There's a lot of yeah. people who take Fridays off just like as a matter of course. I'm always like, wow, what a nice, like, just doesn't, nobody has a five day week anymore. Like, you know, not that, that not that you have to, but I just like wonder at it. And yeah. your book kind of pulls away the screen. And, um, I guess like the question that I would pose <laughs> is, like the actual nuts and bolts of writing about this and doing it well, it's not just a matter of barfing out your feelings, though I suppose that might be part of it. I think ultimately, though, when you have to go in with a scalpel and start editing and rendering this as a fiction for a reader, there, there's a measure of control involved. Um, Am I barking up the right tree? Can you talk about like how to write about this stuff and do it in a way that's both truthful, but also maybe not like overwhelming or melodramatic? Yeah, I would start by saying that regardless of the fin one's financial situation, I think we're, it's always cloaked in shame, right? And so the first thing I think is just pressing past that or beyond that or just feeling so exhausted by the fact of no one talking about it or so isolated by the fact of no one talking about it that, that 
once I was able to press past that space of shame, I could actually start to think about, okay, how do I be precise enough about it to get both things at once, which is to say the thing of the obscene privilege. And it's exactly what you say. I think even when you don't have any money, I don't really have any money, but I had the extraordinary privilege of making a lot of choices when I was very young that were not in any way informed by a knowledge of the precarity that comes from not having money, right? I've been a professor of various places for a long time and my undergrads, whenever they're first generation, especially, and I, and I mostly teach at Columbia, they'll be interested in poetry, they'll be interested in art, and then I'll say, what's your major? And it'll be something in STEM because they're not dumb right? And because they only have one chance. And the idea that they would choose something that would result in more precarity instead of less is is absurd, right? Like, it's an absurd choice to choose to be a writer. And it's a privilege to feel safe enough in the world that you might choose it. And, and you know, whether you get that privilege from generational money, or whether you get that privilege from hubris, wherever you get that privilege, it is a privilege, right? It, it doesn't necessarily come from money, but it is a privilege. Um, and so I think that was number one. I wanted to really grapple with that, but I also wanted to your point of how money is talked about in literature and, and the way that I was always, I was kind of frustrated by it in the books that I read and books that I really liked books that I really liked would very vaguely talk about financial anxiety. And then the character would buy, would order a pizza every night and a pizza in New York is like $26, right? So if you can order a pizza every night, you're not actually broke you're just another person in brooklyn who talks about being broke all the time and then has a house in upstate you know um and so i wanted to move from the space of general financial anxiety to actual concrete precarity so i have them declare bankruptcy on page 45 or something and then it became a matter so once i knew i wanted to hold both those things and i wanted to ask the reader to hold both those things in their mind at the same time, like absolute concrete privilege and absolute concrete financial precarity. I, I gave myself that game that I talked about before of anytime she starts to feel like a victim, I need a scene where she feels like a perpetrator and vice versa. Uh, and I think maybe the best example of that, just as an example in the book, and this won't make any sense if you haven't read it, but there's a moment in the book where she goes shop. She goes to, it's, it's, it's a, very cloaked three lives in co there's this bookstore on west 10th street in the village that she loves that she goes to and in all of these drafts of the book i kept talking about how desperate she was to buy a book because she was broke and my editor who was very smart was like this isn't quite right and she was right because she's she could get books from work there are ways to get books she could go to the library it wasn't about buying books it was about the fact that it feels good to consume and her particular space of consumption happened to be books and she wanted to be a consumer. Right. And that scene is so much more interesting because she's not like, Oh, woe is me. I don't have 26 99. She's like, you know, I can get a book. I just want to be able to be a person who's not terrified that if I get a book, I won't be able to pay my rent. Um, and so I think moments like that where I could have made her, seem sad or I could have made her seem like a victim but instead I said no but also this is just what she wants right like also you know this isn't about this isn't about need this is about and that's the title of the book but you know but this isn't just about need it's also about what we feel like we should be allowed 
to want, what we feel like we should be allowed to consume, how the places that we come from teach us that our values should be directly connected to our ability to consume. Um, so again, it was just, I, I think every moment like that, it was sort of doubling down and saying, have I fully brought her to the mat? Have I fully considered how she's culpable, how she still has agency? She doesn't have as much agency as she wants, but she does have some. Yeah, I know. It's interesting too, how people who might be in a station of relative privilege can feel like they're in a state of such precarity. You know, I feel yeah. like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Like I really yeah. am. And, uh, I totally relate to your, um, comments earlier about being able to make choices when you were young that put you in a more precarious state. I feel like I've paid a price for that as I've gotten older. <laughs> um, it's, you know, there's a big cost to making that wager early on. If you don't have, you know, some huge windfall coming, like you, you can get yourself into financial trouble and into a state of difficulty, but you know, the stakes have not been as high for me as they might be for other people. And yet, I can still feel such a sense of danger and difficulty and suffering. And then I can feel guilty about feeling that way because I know I have it better than most people. Um, yeah. You know, I don't want to get like too, uh, I mean, I guess this whole show is confessional, but I don't want to make it too much about me. But I, I would just tell you, you know, and I've, I've said this before on this show my dad is the first person in his family to even graduate college. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. My grandfather was first generation on that side. My mother's father, um, my mother's parents were both educated and it was a bit of a different, you know, socioeconomic circumstance, but they didn't live like crazy high on the hog or anything. They also had nine children, so I don't think you could, but um, the point that I'm trying to make is that I grew up seeing grandparents who lived off of social security in basically a shotgun house in the bayou in Louisiana. Um, but I've also been witness to, um, my father and his career and he did really well, uh, for himself. And so, but it didn't really happen until I was in college. You know what I'm saying? I didn't grow up that way. Yeah. So, and then I've never made uh, a bunch of money in my life. So, I just feel like I have all like this range of experiences that can be a little bit um, head spinning where yeah. I'm like, holy shit. You know, I feel like I relate to everything almost, you know, like I, I sort of have been able to witness like a lot of different stations uh, in the hierarchy. And I guess that's good, but I, I don't know. I'm just kind of babbling at you, but I think it's worth talking about. Like, I think these I'm... things are important and I think a lot of people feel this way. No, I, I, I think they're so important and, and it's connected to what we were talking about before, even with, with how we're meant to still try to connect to one another, you know, I mean, and I don't, <laughs> I really don't want to go down this rabbit hole and I'll just dip my toe in, which is to say the idea that someone and, and ladies on Goodreads have felt this way about my book and everyone is entitled to their opinion, but, but the idea that we, there, there, there is this response, I think of like, well, they're incredibly privileged so i don't want to i don't want to hear them whine you know which is which is valid right which is which is fair which is if you're in a place of extreme duress or discomfort or need the idea that someone who is safe and comfortable and fed also has problems or feels like they have problems you don't always have the time or patience for and i and i get that like you say i get that i think from from quite a few different perspectives just based on 
background, etc. Um, but but the idea that we reject different people's humanity at the point that X happens, I reject, right? On any term, you know, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. She's a she's an immigration lawyer, and 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 she was like liberals. And, and, you know, we're, I assume that everyone is, <laughs> when I talk to you, it's pretty liberal and I'm pretty liberal. And she was like, everybody has the empathy. Everybody has the ability right now to feel, to feel bad for someone who is explicitly and concretely oppressed. Right. And most of her clients are that. And yet there are other people who are suffering in different ways who right now we've decided we don't have the bandwidth to acknowledge as also human and also in need of our generosity, just, just as humans, right? Like they don't need our money, but they need us to acknowledge that they might be suffering. They need us to acknowledge that it sucks to be a person for almost everyone right now. Um, and, and I don't think I solved that problem. I don't think I have answers to all of those questions, but I do think it's worth considering how almost all of us have certain lines that we draw about whose humanity is worth what based on X or Y or Z. Um, And maybe how books can, can help us help us. There's this amazing movie that's also very good because Robert Pattinson doesn't wear a shirt. Uh, It's a Claire Dennis movie. And now I'm sort of objectifying Robert Pattinson and I'm sorry, but um, (laughs) he's, do you know this movie? He's, he's in space with a baby. That's how my friend got me to see it. He was like, it's Robert Pattinson in space with a baby. And I was like, sure. Um, But, but the movie does this amazing thing. So, so the people in space and they might be, they might be dying and that feels sad, but then you find out that they've all committed heinous crimes. And the movie asks you to continue to feel sad about the fact that they probably all will die. Right. And the movie just continually does this to you the whole time where it's like, you wanted it to be, you wanted this, this relate, this baby to be the result of a tragic love affair. That feels like one thing, but then halfway through the movie, I'm going to tell you that this baby is actually the result of violent sex do you care about this baby in the same way? Right. And it's just, it's just this exercise in what do you think is human and where are you willing to go with regard to empathy and with regard to grief and with regard to love for someone else as the terms shift. My book is not maybe as, as interesting as that or as, you know, but I, but I think there's really something there about what books can do, right? Like, can we shift our relationship to who we think is worthy of our generosity I I don't know. That feels like something we could try to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I go through these like mental exercises sometimes where I'm like, I have so much antipathy for Donald Trump just as like a really like kind of like glaring example. Yeah. And yet I can sometimes be like, well, what, how would the Dalai Lama interact with Trump? You know, like I can, put yeah. my, I can start to play these like weird mental movies. And I don't think uh, the Dalai Lama would be a dick. Obviously he would, like he would try to see the humanity and find common ground. And then I can start to think like, well, you know, Trump is an abused child. He was an abused, right. sad, scared child who was raised in an abusive like home emotionally. He went to military school. Maybe he got beat up like something awful. Maybe many somethings awful happened to this guy. He might also right. be the victim of his genetics. Like maybe he inherited psychopathy, which I think might have a genetic component and runs in his family. And so you know, I can try to sort of run these these sort of uh, thought uh, or logic uh, games in my head, 
to see if, you know, this sort of upset, almost obsessive antipathy that I feel because the stakes feel so high and so consequential to all of our lives, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. his continued uh, rule. Uh, But I wonder if like my humanity is being diminished by it. And like, I'm thinking like you're thinking like, where are the boundaries? You know, I think many of us are just like, yeah, fuck him. Like he has choices. He was abused, but not everybody who's abused turns out to be an abuser. And, you know, sometimes I'll think that and then I'll I'll get into my little, uh, you know, fuck Trump mindset. And I don't know. It's just, it's just, uh, it's complicated. And I think like at a spiritual level, like, you know, my best self, my, like my inner Dalai Lama, (laughs) if for lack of a better way of putting it would try to find the humanity in everyone, even those who have done and said really hideous things, they're still a person. And I resist this notion to sort of, uh, you know, caricature or turn into a cartoon, like a cartoon of evil, these people, because I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's just like something that, you know, that happened for no reason. There's always a reason why people do these things. And I think that the suffering that they might have, uh, you know, experienced that they are then replicating is... uh, you know, deep down a suffering that we can all relate to or that these like baser emotions that they exemplify, well, they live within all of us. And so I think to hold yourself separate from it entirely is a fallacy. Am I making any any, any sense? No, I think you're making a ton of sense. And I also think, again, that's why I I do think storytelling has a power that very few other things do because I go through the same thing that you do. And my, my, (laughs) my six year old, I'm constantly telling her there's, I don't, mommy doesn't believe there's good things and there's bad, there's good people and there's bad people. And she's always like, what about Donald Trump? And I'm like, well, and then, (laughs) and then, and then we talk about this, but then, you know, then she'll hear someone say something about him and she'll be like, well, his daddy was really mean to him. So, you know, and I'm like, well, don't make excuses, right? Like you, it's a, it's a, it's scary in either direction, I think, it's, which is to say it's also why I think stories are useful because you go down the path of trying to understand Donald Trump's humanity and you can go pretty deep and you can feel like the Dalai Lama, but then you pop your head up and there are children in cages, right? And so how do you hold both those things in your brain at the same time? I think stories, right? Because because if you make the argument toward is humanity, you lose hold of his cruelty. And if you make the argument toward his cruelty, you lose hold of his humanity. But if you just give us a scene of a baby Donnie getting the shit kicked out of him by his dad, and then you give us a scene of him just wanting to feel the thrill of people cheering as he puts small children in cages, there's something interesting and worthwhile and human that lives in the collision of those two scenes that I'm not sure either of the arguments we could make about his cruelty or his humanity could hold and allow for in the same way. Yeah, I, I agree. You got to be able to hold these two things. Maybe that's, that's like the struggle I think a lot of us are going through, uh, you know, is trying to sort of balance it all. There's so much to process. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you, like shifting gears a little bit about female yeah. friend, female friendship, which yeah. is also a central concern of your novel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. It's like it, there's a, a beautiful 
structural kind of braiding that you're doing in this book um, where, you know, there's a lot of socioeconomic concerns and domestic concerns uh, in particular related to finance, uh, professional concerns. You know, there's all these things that you've sort of channeling through your, your main character. But there is also, as a through line, um, you know, relational concerns. Like, and there's this really core friendship with Sasha. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's also the relationship that the narrator has with her parents, um, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, kind of carries the story. So I guess uh, like a one question I would have is how you landed there. And if you landed there to begin with, if this was always just there in your head as you were conceiving of the book, or if you landed on it later as you were working through the story and felt like maybe by integrating this, you would offer some ballast to the other stuff. Yeah, I think I think the latter is closest if only to say I like you say this is this is playing in the space of autofiction I was I was pressing toward wanting to say certain things that I felt like I hadn't seen said and it felt imperative to say but then I pulled out of the book and I also remembered that I wanted to write a book and I really love books and I love books with shape and I love books with plot and Sasha existed from the beginning but then as a as a writer and not just as someone sort of spewing my feelings I guess I was like oh right she's my engine right so then so then she was just this very useful check-in point and actually the parents too the way that I like just structurally they were incredibly useful to me and and then I think once and I think too, this is why writing books is so much fun. It was it was this formal choice that then I had to really press on the content in the same way I was pressing on the content of the other things. And I and I just I really love female friendship books, you know. And so I wanted I wanted to write a female friendship book because I wanted the book to also have levels of pleasure and satisfaction that I at least have found in, in female friendships, and honestly that I found in friendship books, and also that I found in female friendship. So so. At some point, it became a structural necessity, and then I just really got inside of it, and it felt like a useful ballast, not just in terms of of the architecture of the book, but also in terms of, of the feelings that it allowed me to, I hope, let the reader inhabit that a lot of the main character's regular daily life, she just doesn't have a lot of access to. Yeah, I mean, there's you do some really great things uh, with how we conduct friendships in contemporary times the way that we filter so many of our interactions through social media the way that we can mm -hmm. digitally stalk one another or mm -hmm. or you know silently evaluate one another from afar or how much confusion it can sometimes engender when you're not quite sure what mm -hmm. someone means the way that you can sit around obsessing about the subtext of a person's instagram post and uh you know this is the stuff of our daily lives almost everybody and yeah, to, I, I haven't seen it done much better in a book. I'm sure there are, you know, probably other examples that I just haven't seen. But you did it. You do a really nice job of rendering that in a way that feels true to life. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, she's she's an obsessive. I mean, Elizabeth, the main character is an obsessive. So the idea that she wouldn't obsess over Instagram in the same way she obsesses over books, I also think it's such a great talk about narrative tools it's such a great narrative tool I was talking to someone about this book as opposed to she was talking about a Barbara Pym book and she was like yeah in that book all she could do was remember 
but in in your book she can look on Instagram and it's really because it act, it's active and it's engaging and so that way it's also really useful just as a writer to be able to say no she's not just thinking um she's she's Instagram stalking <laughs> which is maybe more interesting I hope is more interesting totally and uh, but we should let people know too you are sitting in what Prospect Park and or Park Slope somewhere where are you at I am I am I'm sitting I'm sitting against the wall in Prospect Park and now there's a there's an ambulance coming by. Okay, good. I like people to have some visual read on you. You have escaped your apartment to be able to do this interview and are just out and about at large in Brooklyn. I am. I am. I'm camping out and I'm waiting to watch my children be walked to their one socially distant activity with other children in a few minutes. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, maybe we yeah. can maybe we can bring them in for a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to I want to say too that I love female friendship and I, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of like a little bit jokey, but really not because I witness it through my wife. And I said this many times before on this show that I have a certain envy for the way that moms, I guess that's the context that I'm in, um, take care of one another and connect with one another and maintain relationships with one another and form community together and support structures for one another in ways that guys simply do not. And yeah. I guess like, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I want female friendships. I want, <laughs> I want to be friends with women. Fuck guys. Guys don't know what they're doing, you know, like, or maybe that's like a, I should flip it around and have it be a call to arms so that I can try to be better and, you know, be a leader, uh, among my, my guy friends. But <laughs> it just doesn't seem like guys are wired for it or most guys are wired for it. And I, I feel like I am like, I don't, I can't I can't do like superficial guy hangout stuff as easily yeah. as many guys. I'd rather hang out with the moms. Yeah. I mean moms there's nothing better in life than moms. I hate to be that mom, but here I am. Like you're I mean and at no time has that been more evident as now, which is to say the only way this is happening is because the other mom with whom I've just we've bubbled for the foreseeable future because our kids are remote has my kids. And in a little bit, I'm going to take our kids so she can have a couple of hours. And she's the only reason I'm alive right now um, is, is her and a couple of other moms that even the ones I can't see I'm texting with. Although I will say one of my best mom friends is a man uh, and he's a writer and it is possible yeah, he's I don't know. I don't know if it, it shifts things because he's gay. And I think, you know, his husband and my husband used to travel a bunch when our kids were really small. His husband actually still does travel, but mine doesn't as much. And we spent we spent a lot of time together. So maybe that gives you hope. He, he you know, one of my best mom friends is is a man and and he fulfills all of my needs. All my mom friends. It doesn't count. Needs. It doesn't count. I mean, no? like now, I mean, I just think that like the fact that he's gay. Um, does it does shift things, <laughs> and and like I would say too, like I'd rather be friends with a gay parent, like a gay guy, yeah. I think, than uh, like that's going to be probably more interesting than the straight dudes. Uh, you know, not yeah. not in every single case, one hundred thousand percent of the time, but just generally. Yeah, well, uh, it is it is very weird. Like I'm sure you and your wife found this. Uh, my husband and I found it. Uh, I'll speak for me. I found it incredibly shocking how much biology when you have kids just slaps you in the face. Like we were so impressed by our ability to be sort of, you know, equal and I'm a feminist and he's, a, you know, whatever we thought. Uh, but then I was cut open and leaking and he was just sort of there 
asking what to do, but really kind of wanting to go to the gym. And then I was like, so now this marriage is over. If you go to the gym, you know, like it's, it's, it is really interesting. I think at least in my experience, how parenthood reminds you that biology is a real thing, (laughs) you know? Um, And my, you know, my kids, need I nursed my kids a long time they needed me more I don't know it's just it's a different experience um and it's and again this this moment has really has been really jarring with regard to how much of the parenting is falling on the moms and it's a bunch of Brooklyn moms who thought who all you know we all have jobs we all thought that we had equal partnerships and my husband has been back to work since May and not once has employ has his employer asked him who's taking care of the children. Right. So, you know, well, I feel that I feel that for sure. So much of the burden of parenthood has fallen on my wife, like, uh, during this, but I also feel like, well, you know, I've got to be back here trying to make a living and like, you have to divide and conquer on some level. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, you have to make choices, one, one or the other. Either I'm going to be inside doing it and she'll be out here or I'll be out here. And, you know, I, yeah. it's just, yeah. it, it's very difficult, I guess, in practice when right. you're trying to make ends meet for there to be like a real 50-50 split in right. terms of how things happen domestically. Right. I mean, to be not to, but why not? It's also a position our country has put us in. Right. Like my friend, my friend said something to me the other day. We were joking about moving to Germany as we do a lot. And she was like, I just can't wait to live in a place under a system in which every choice I make doesn't feel like it's inevitably going to hurt another person. You know, and I I do think that's in large part a result of of where our country is. Right. Like if I take something, my assumption is, is that I'm taking it from somebody else because everything feels so zero sum. And, you know, I, I think that I do think that's particular to to our relationship to capitalism. But maybe that's probably another conversation. No, I mean, but it's related. It's related. I, yeah. feel, I feel that way, too. Like one of the things that I think we can easily forget, but that we can't let ourselves forget is that it doesn't have to be like this. And it, yeah. it, it isn't like this in so many other places that share what we profess to be our core values, you know? And I think that there can be a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a surrender or Mm -hmm. just this sense of like, well, we can't do any better. This is the way things are. And uh, I just hope that we don't succumb to that because it really just comes down to, I mean, you know, assuming that we can vote and have the votes be counted and maintain a representative democracy uh, in practice, like it just comes down to political will and getting, you know, the right people into office so that we can recalibrate our system so that it's not so cruel and it's not so um, insane. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I feel it. I hope. I, I, I hope too. And I think... I'm speaking so much as a dad right now, you know, like, yeah, I think like the, the apolitical me, though I was never apolitical, but the more apolitical side of me, I think is tied to youth, but it gets really hard for me when I think about my kids to not get my hands dirty with this stuff, like as yucky as it can be, you know? Yeah, no. And it's what, like you said, I don't think we have, 
a choice. I mean, I, you know, like you said, for, for all of us, I think these past few years have been, and especially these past few months have been just a clobbering. But I also think a thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is that so many cataclysms have happened, right? Like all so many of the catastrophes we were worried about have occurred, but we're here. Right. And my kids are still making dumb fart jokes this morning and then lying on the floor screaming. And I'm still sitting here and it's a nice day in Prospect Park. Like the cataclysms happen and then we continue to have to find ways to live our lives. And as insofar as there's been hope or something in this, I have found a sort of comfort in that because as long as we're here, we've still got a shot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the fact, I don't know, like when, when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last weekend, I just like, you know, like everybody else, it was just, it was just, it was also the interesting thing. I was talking to my students about it after it happened because we were reading a book where the character, we're reading Hunger by Newt Hamsen um, and the character asks God, everyone sort of talks to God in this way that doesn't really feel like it's about God. It just feels like this empty grasping at something. And I was, I was saying that, Right now, it feels like that's just the word fuck, right? That Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I got seven text messages from all of my mom friends just saying fuck, right? And that that's the same, like, there's no language left for how bad it's gotten, and yet here we are, right? And and I don't, again, I'm not sure it's hope, but it's but it's a doubling down on the fact that we can still act, right? We're not we're not helpless if only because we're not dead. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So yeah, we keep, we keep, we keep going and we have kids. So we, we collectivize a, because we have to raise our kids and also because we have to try to salvage something so that they can live inside of it. Yeah. I hear you. And I think mom here again, like to circle back to like lady friendships, uh, I feel like moms organizing around this stuff have imp- like at least my wife and her friends have impressed me a lot in terms of all that they've been doing. And I don't know, there's just no, there's just no corollary on the guy side. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's like you say, it's so, it's so tricky and complicated. Like we're doing the vote forward. And again, this is, we've gone off track, but I also don't think we have because I think every utterance is political whatever so but we're doing that vote forward thing where you write letters to voters and we're integrating it into our our all my kids are remote school and all of our kids are remote school so my mom friends and I are writing these letters together with our kids in the afternoon which is female and mom centric but it's also because most of our husband's jobs our misogynistic systems that won't give them time off, right? Like my, my, most of our husbands would be sitting next to us writing letters too, but their jobs are making them come in. And, and my job is, is teaching. So it's not, and you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's complicated. Um, and while I do think the men have agency, I also think it's bigger than that. Yeah, no, we're writing postcards to voters. We're doing that too. I'm, I'm heartened to hear that like, this is a, like widespread or at least wider spread. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm so worry of hope at this point, <laughs> but it does feel like everyone I know is really trying to do something concrete right now. And that, again, that feels, that feels good. Yeah. I mean, that's what you got to do. You can't just sit around like moping or wringing your hands. Like, I think it's important to take action. And I think if enough people do that, 
then we're going to be, we're going to be okay. You know, we're going to come through this, but if people fall into the fetal position and just decide that they're defeated, then I think, uh, the, the consequences will be dark. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, I mean, in my mind, to a large extent, we are defeated. We lost, but we're still here and we can only fight that much harder. You mean about the Supreme court? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, but, but everything, right? Like Mitch McConnell got everything. (laughs) No, he didn't get, he actually didn't get affordable healthcare. You know, he didn't, whatever. Anyways. Yeah. I think, I think the Supreme court was a big one. We lost the election four years ago. We've had so many losses, right? But we're still here. So like you say, the only people that can make us passive is ourselves. I also feel, and maybe, maybe I'm mistaken here, but it sure does seem to me like there is a system that is white supremacist, that is uh, like hyper-masculine. It's like the white, the old white guy, like the old jowly white guy, America, Mm -hmm. you know, that Trump Mm -hmm. is emblematic of and seeks to perpetuate. It really does feel to me like demographically, they know they are facing an existential threat and they're trying to consolidate power in whatever ways. It's like a desperate quest to sort of fend off this encroaching, um, demographic and cultural shift in America. And I, I don't think they, I mean, they might be able to have the upper hand by cheating or by like stacking the courts or whatever. They might be able to play defense that way, but like we should play offense for God's sakes. Like my, we're the majority, you know, that's the way I, I sort of sense it. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think again, on my hopeful days, I think of it as the last gasp. Um, but who, yeah, who knows? I also think like you say, we just can't, we just can't imagine what comes next. right? <laughs> like we just, we, I couldn't have imagined any of the past four years and we can't imagine what comes next and everything that's felt like a loss. There's been another side of, and even if we lose this, there'll be another side of that. And I do think there are more of us. I do believe there's more good than evil. And that's all we can do. We've got kids. We've got to keep hoping. Right. Right. So I want to ask you about, you said you're working on another book. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like uh, this is kind of a self-interested question because I went through a, maybe a similar, a somewhat similar creative process where there's this real sense of urgency and personal stakes and just kind of like this like white hot creative experience of writing a book. Uh, in a compressed time frame, at least like this draft. And then to move on to the next thing and to use as a kind of litmus that same energy, you know, there's the impulse toward that for me. Like, wow, I shouldn't write a book unless I feel this strongly. Like, what's the, you know, it takes so it takes too long and there's too little reward. Like, why write a book unless you really have your hair on fire, you know, for it? Um, I'm right. curious to know if you feel similarly, if you've struggled to find that in the next book, or if you have like recalibrated your thinking or have different thinking around what it has to feel like. Yeah. I mean, I think that that fear ex- existed and still every once in a while, I think it exists as I check in with this book and I say, is it as urgent and as necessary? Does it feel the same? And I think, you know, my thing and this is, again, what I say to students. My thing is always that we're always going to fail. 
at writing books. Our books are always going to be failures, but we're going to fail slightly better. And then I and then I need to then have language for how this book is pushing both me as a writer and also pushing content wise forward in some way that I have language for. So I can say I'm getting up in the morning and I'm going into this book because my last book did X, but now I want to really press on Y and it's in conversation with X, but it's, but it's pressing it forward. So I think, I think the energy I've gotten from this book has very much been the excitement of doubling down in terms of okay I know the type of writer I want to be I know the types of conversations I want to enter into and what did I not say that now I I want to say um I don't know if that's useful but yeah yeah that's that's sort of where that's where I'm coming from and I think too just to just to say this moment like I think that, that this next book is a lot about collectivity which I feel you know, I, I feel like with the other book, it was something I was circling around and thinking about this idea that none of us lives outside of the experience or the agony of other people. But it was still a very first person singular experience book. And it had to be right. So I also think like I thought about the ways that the form of that book constrained me in the way that all form constrains us. And how could I make a form that didn't constrain me in the same way? And I think that's all been, this book is from three different perspectives, uh, sorry, four different perspectives. And that's been really exciting. And they're all women. And that's been just fun to think about gradations of experience, all of which you're experiencing an intimate relationship to. Instead of in my previous book, I think it was gradations of experience, but you were only intimate really with, with one of those people's experience. How far along are you in this new book? Um, <laughs> I just emailed my friend a draft. Um, but I've been working on it. A, my, my thing is always, I can't finish. I can't finish a book until I've started the new book because I have to remind myself that no book can contain everything you want to say is otherwise I won't finish. Right. Cause I'm like, well, wait a minute. I, you know, so, so I started it a couple of years ago and I had it, I was really interested in certain like formal architectural things that I wanted to do, but I'm sure you maybe you'll recognize this feeling as a writer. I hadn't hit that place of like, I'm falling off a cliff and I'm not sure where I'm going, but I have to feel that in order to know it's really a book. I hadn't hit that yet. And then since COVID, I was listening to this podcast and this guy said, was talking about his kids and he was a black man and he was talking about raising a teenage black son. And he was, he was talking about getting in a fight with his son and his son yelled at him and he said, he looked at his son and he said, why should they listen to us? Look what we've made of the world. And I sat on the floor <laughs> and cried um, and I was like, oh, that's what this book is about, right? Like, what what have we built for them, for our kids? And how do we ask them to listen to us and be with us and collectivize with us when we also did this? And I think once I, once I had back to that analogy, which is always my analogy, like I always, I have to pick the bruise that I'm pressing. And once I know the bruise, I can write the book. And once I knew that was the bruise, 
it it's it started to come in that way of urgent and necessary and also I feel a little bit flayed open and sad <laughs> for the whole time I'm working. There we go. That's what I wanted. Yeah. I wanted you to just uh, like elucidate the, the like what's the the evidence procedure for you to get to where you can write the thing that makes sense to me. You know, you got to yeah. def- you got to define the pain basically that you're working yeah. out of. Yeah. Um, do well, you do, else, go ahead. I was going to say, do you outline just because I'm curious to know, like when you're you know, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to build a narrative that, you know speaks to it and encompasses it and all the rest. So like, I'm curious to know creatively, like how you get to the place where you're, you know, you're world building and you've got characters and like all the accoutrement of uh, fiction. I think with, with want, it was a lot. I had a list of the threads. Like I had very specific threads. Some of them were characters like the Chilean writer and Kayla. There's there's certain characters and then just certain ideas like sexual violence. Um, Yay that that was were threads and then I and then I was just thinking I was continually sort of reconsidering the different beats like I it was this idea that every time I hit on that thread I had to be complicating it or richening it in some way we couldn't just be returning to an idea without furthering something about the idea so it was all beats and threads that's sort of my made-up language um but and so everything was sort of charted in that vein with this book, again, just to give myself, just to make myself feel like I was entering a different world, I wanted it to be a very compressed bit of time. It just happens over three days, partially because, you know, I, and I'm sure this is like much smarter people than me have said this, but that idea that if you, the more constraints you put on the book from the beginning, the freer you are within that space to do what you want to do. So I, I knew I wanted it to be three days. I knew I wanted it to be a family sort of up trapped together in a house and it's snowing. And I knew that a little girl goes missing. So I had these sort of component parts. And then, and then within that I I had free reign. I knew where I knew, I knew the image I wanted it to end on weirdly, which, which doesn't always happen, but it was connected. It's also a book about making art and sort of the futility of that. And so I knew within that, but also maybe the hope, I don't know. So I knew the image I wanted it to land on and I knew the constraints of the three days and I knew the rupture, right? Like if a book's supposed to open with a rupture, the rupture was the little girl goes missing. And so that's the energy to move forward. And I knew where it landed. And my whole job was to just fill that space between that first rupture and that last image. Interesting. Well, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed want. I think it's a really good book. I I think it, you know, I'm going to make a prediction that it's going to keep finding readers. It's going to be one of these like little engine. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's already doing it, and you've sold a bajillion copies. But no. if that hasn't if that hasn't happened, I think you should have faith because I think it's going to be a book that gets passed from person to person. It's going to connect. Um, that's just my prediction. I've I don't know. I feel like I have a pretty good antenna, like having done this show for a decade and you know read a bunch of books and. I don't know. I just have a good feeling about it for what it's worth. So congrats on doing some really fine work. And well, I wish you, you I wish you luck on the new one. Thank you. I wish congrats on yours and good luck on the submission. That's that's I feel like we skimmed over that, but that's really exciting. I hope so. I don't know what to expect. I have zero, like I haven't sold a bunch of books. So I'm in a similar like marketplace position that you were in. So I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be like 
Whoa, are you in a tornado? I don't. I just heard the wind blow. No, it's just yeah, it's a little wind. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe that's a sign. There's like a tornado-like yeah. sound as soon as I started talking about my book's chances in the marketplace. <laughs> but uh, no. I don't know. Who knows? I just have zero idea what to expect. I imagine that it will be difficult, and I, so much of it is out of my hands and comes down to luck and timing and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But I also think. I mean we don't and i should we should stop i should stop taking up your time but i do feel like it's worth saying with 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 my book we had quite a bit of interest but it all disappeared because of my sales from the previous book and it basically came down to one editor and i think having that person having to really fight like everybody having to fight and most of the people losing i, I could not be happier with where i ended up and I could not have had a person who understood my book better than the editor that I ended up with. I didn't get nearly as much money as I wish I would have. <laughs> and I should admit to that because I believe in that. Like, I wish, sure, the money could have been better. But I do think there's something great about someone, an editor, having to fight for your book and knowing how to fight for your book from the beginning. That maybe is, is the silver lining of, of the not great sales track. But... Well, I think, well, no, I I hear you. I think it brings to mind something I say often on this show is that it it only takes one, you know, you don't, you don't have to have 10 people publish your book. You have to have one person or one company publish your book and then it's a book and nobody who picks it up is, you know, any wiser. But I think it also, um, is worth underlining how important it is to any writer's career to have a true champion, you know, both as an uh, in the context of an agent, you know, somebody who's representing you in the marketplace, but also on the editorial side, somebody who really understands and believes in your book. Like in the absence of that, it's it's very difficult to to survive or have any kind of success. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we none of it none of it gets made by ourselves, which is both terrifying and a real comfort. <laughs> Right. Yeah, please. I, I did the I did the writing. Now somebody else can worry about this thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, Lynn. Well, listen, I'll let you go uh, be with your kids and with your like what your bubble friend. Is that what we call people that we're bubbling I with? Think, I, I think you use the word pod, but I feel like there are financial implications with the word pod and we don't have <laughs> we, right. didn't, we didn't hire a teacher. Uh, but yeah, we're our bubble, our pod. Yeah. Okay what well, we're doing enjoy your your bubble pod uh <laughs> congrats again and uh i hope to catch up with you again down the road yeah thank you so much this was a, this was a pleasure and good luck with the book okay there you go that is lynn steger strong her new novel is called want it is available from henry holt you can find her online her website is lynn steger strong Dot com, And uh, her Twitter handle is at Lynn S. Strong. Once again, the book is called Want. Available now from Henry Holt. Go get your copy. Read this book. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode, more than 670 some odd episodes, all available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you have the means and you like the program, support the program. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
If you want to send in a photo of where you listen and do that whole thing, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. If you have something to say to me, email me, letters at otherppl.com. You can also DM your photos uh, via social media over on Twitter at otherppl, or we have an Instagram too. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It too is free. Go get the app. If you want to get some other people gear, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a tank top, they're really good, high quality, soft t-shirts. The kind that you like to wear. They're soft. They fit well. Just go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. Look for the t-shirt on the left sidebar. Click on that t-shirt and get yourself some apparel. Coming up on Wednesday, I have Dean Kuntz on the program. You may have heard of him. He sold uh, 500 million copies of his books worldwide. He was nice enough to talk with me. That conversation is imminent. Stay tuned. I hope you're okay out there. I hope you're, you're staying sane. However best you uh, are able to do that. I hope you're making a plan to vote. Figure that out. Go to vote.org. I think that's the website. Make a plan. Get your vote in. Get it in ahead of time. Vote once. Vote safely. Vote well. Wear a mask. Je parle un petit peu.